Um, my name is Charles Gant, and I am a journalist at Screen International. Um, we're going to be doing uh, an hour-long session, and there'll be some time for your questions, so please, please do have them ready. I'd now like to welcome to the stage our guest this morning, who is, of course, the double BAFTA and Oscar-winning producer of Senna and Amy. Please welcome James Gay Reeves. So your first credit was, when was it, 1998, I think? Yep. So that was the real Howard Spitz, which was, I mean, I don't know how, if ever, I guess people obviously looked at all your credits on the IMDb, and I, I mean, I, I did that, and I kind of hadn't realized how many I made a lot of bad films. <laughs> fiction features you'd seen, most of which I have seen, because, um, at, you know, during these years, I was reviewing films for Heat magazine, and so, we, you know, you were right in our wheelhouse with, uh, you know, Black Ball and the wedding video and, uh, Sorry. and <laughs> those other masterpieces. So, um, so good to talk, talk about those kind of mm. early years as a fiction feature producer, sort of first in LA and then yep. back in London. Yeah, I mean, the first thing with um, The Real House Bits was, uh, you know, again, that wasn't really my film. That was produced by a guy called Paul Brooks, who's, you know, done incredibly well now with things like Pitch Perfect and all those kind of movies. Okay. And a really nice director, really good guy called Vadim Jean, who's directed loads of things over the years. And that was their film. It was a Kelsey Grammer vehicle. And yeah. uh, I was living in Los Angeles. Vadim and I were trying to make another film. So he said, in the meantime, will you produce like, the American section of that? So that was basically it, really. It was just right. kind of, it was a bit of a baptism, baptism of fire. And then, so then you came back to London and you did Long Time Dead with W. So WT2, I don't know how, how um, long people's memories are here. So working title set up a kind of diffusion brand. No budget they, division, yeah. Yeah, where they tried to, you know, obviously had amazing success out of the gate with Billy Elliot, mm. and you were one of the other films. Yeah, one of the other ones. We, yeah, so basically what happened was Mel had directed Bean for working title. Right. And then I, went, I was coming back to the UK for sort of, to, to, to my wife's British and all the rest of it, so I came back to the UK and, um, and I proposed to working title that they should, on the back of the success of being that they should entertain the idea of a first look deal, basically, with myself and Mel. We set up a small company called Midfield Films. Mm -hmm. And so the first one that we did through that was a kind of a relatively low budget horror movie team. It was a response to those kind of American movies like Scream, mm -hmm. because they suddenly blew up in that And space. I know what you did last summer, and yeah, yeah that. And so we were like, we hadn't made horror in this country for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And so it was, a, it, was a, it was a teen horror. It sort of worked in a way. Um, the script was never really that great, but the intention was quite interesting, I think, and um, the film actually did fine, ultimately. But, um, so yeah, we made that through that, and then Senna was the last film to come out of that first look deal. Yeah, well, let's, since you bring Senna up, um, I mean, you, having made a number of fiction features, you then sort of transitioned into documentary, although there was, there was a kind of a bit of an overlap mm. there. Um, so what was the impulse to suddenly, you know, you had no background whatsoever no. in documentary filmmaking. What was the impulse to, to, to kind of try and launch yeah. Senna? It's totally random. I mean, you know, I'm definitely not one of those people that's come through the BBC or has come, do you know what I mean? I'm not like a, a proper documentary creature that's kind of cut their teeth mm -hmm. in TV and everything. It was, um, my father knew Ayrton Senna vaguely because, God, so long ago, but my dad was an advertising executive. And the second car that Senna drove was that black and gold. It looked like a cigarette packet. It was basically a cigarette packet. Okay. John Player Special. 
My dad was the account director for John Player Special. So my dad would go to these Grand Prix to do these sort of photo shoots mm -hmm. after the event. And it was just really, it's really interesting actually, because he would come back and say, you know, when I was up 14, 15, he'd say, there's this guy who's just so incredibly other. He's just, he's otherworldly. My dad's not prone to that sort of mm -hmm. thing. And um, he, I'd say, why? What is it about him? He said, I just, there's just something about this guy. He's just so special. And anyway, it sort of stayed with me that. And then I was actually was living in Los Angeles making things like The Real House Pit when Senna died. Mm -hmm. And I remember calling my dad and saying, God, that guy that you met, you used to, you used to go on and on about. I see, because it was like only two column inches in some paper in America, as opposed to being a big deal everywhere else. I was like, he died. And he was like, my dad was like, I just can't believe it. He just like, it just, he, he was incapable of making a mistake a little. Do you know what I mean? It just mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so anyway, just the idea of this kind of incredible journey took seed in my brain. And um, so that kind of happened. And then it was 10 years later, I was in Devon reading a paper, and it was the 10th anniversary of Senna's death. And Simon Barnes in The Times wrote this really amazing retrospective piece about the one time he met Senna. And he said he literally sort of had an out-of-body experience with him because he was so incredibly powerful, this guy. I was like, oh my god, that guy. I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to try and bottle that? What was that thing about this guy? And I, you know, in my naivety thought, well, you know, a documentary would be obviously the way to go about it, presumably. Mm -hmm. And then I did some research and I found out that Michael Mann had tried to make a movie about him, Johnny Depp, Antonio Banderas. He'd been this, you know, people had tried and failed. They were trying to make um, movie, big budget Hollywood movies. Fiction features, yeah. like Johnny Depp to be it and yes, Senna, exactly. for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And the family said no. They got close with Warner Brothers, but the family had always gone, you know what? His family incredibly powerful and wealthy. They, they don't need the money, sort of thing. Right, right. So they were like, it'll get Hollywoodized. We're not really interested. Right. So then we managed to get a connection to the Ent Center Foundation, and the way we got them, it took years, but the way we eventually got them over the line was by saying, you know, it's going to be him in his own words. We can't, we can't bend the truth that much mm -hmm. as a Hollywood narrative would do, yeah. because it's going to be him yeah. telling us his story. So that eventually sort of you know, came together. So you pitched it to Tim and Eric at Working Title, yeah. and they'd never done a documentary before, and no. presumably didn't consider documentary to be the route to riches. No, but Eric's a massive car guy. Right. And racing, yeah, he loves all that side of right. things. And I think he recognized there was something about this story that was kind of elevated it. Yeah. And was probably there worthy of the massive effort that was going to go into it. Yeah. Because that's the thing about these movies, you know. I think for a long time, documentary, not a poor relation to movies, but it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a smaller space in some ways. Mm -hmm. But um, they're just, you know, there's archive based documentaries are just vast undertakings, you know, they take years to make that in that way. Mm -hmm. And they you know, and they're not cheap either. So it's um, you know, it's not an easy option. Right. You know. Well, and I guess probably the best creative decision you ever made was to um, meet up with Asif Kapadio and ask him if he'd be interested in directing the film. Yeah. What um, how did that come about? I'd known Asif for a long time actually because um, he completely coincidentally had been a commercials director at Mel's commercials company, Smith, Jones, Brown, and Cassie, like right. years and years and years and years ago. Right. So we vaguely knew each other. And I loved his first film, The Warrior. Mm -hmm. And so there were sort of thematic similarities, you know, and kind of, um, and obviously Senna was foreign language, and so there wasn't going to be that much dialogue in it initially when we first thought about it. So the idea that, you know, you could do it through strong image storytelling and stuff, right. which obviously played into The Warrior. And um, we had, First of all, spoken to Kevin McDonald about it, right. who ended up being the executive producer. Oh, okay. And then we had a very good 
Brazilian director of tactical, Jose Padilla, who ended up doing Elite Squad and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's obviously a big deal now. And we took, we presented him to the Senna family. It's a very interesting thing, Brazil, actually, because it's sort of, it's a, it's a vast country, but it's sort of run by five incredibly wealthy families. And the Senna's are sort, sort of one of them, and the Padillas are sort of another one. Oh, wow. And they went, so they nixed him, you know. We were like, oh, so we have to go back to the drawing board. So that's why the whole Senna from idea to actually delivering the film was seven years of fairly constant work. Mm-hmm. We went through all these different iterations, you know. But um, anyway, we ended up with Asif, and um, we're now mm-hmm. business partners and, on, and our, our third film together. So you have a company with Asif. Yeah. Which is called? On the Corner. Right. And you're doing sort of films that he's directing, but yeah. also films that he's not directing, but he's exec producing. Yeah, so because he can only you know, do one film at a time, sort yeah. of. So we, as a company, produce stuff as well. Right. So you know, we did that film, Supersonic, about Oasis recently. We did Ronaldo with our friend Anthony Bonke at the back there. Um, so we do that as a, as, a, as a matter of course. And we also have a separate company called Box to Box, which is just a sports content company, which is currently making a couple of sports documentaries right now. And then we have a TV department. So we're sort of trying to build a business out of it a little bit, as opposed to just doing, we sort of were doing one film every three years, mm-hmm. then one film a year, mm-hmm. then three films a year, <laughs> and then it just sort of goes like that, but it's uh, And do you have other staff there? Do you have people in working yep. in like admin development, whatever? Yeah, no, we've got sort of in-house legal now, in-house post, we've got a couple of heads of production, we've got TV development, we've got sort of fact tent department, and we've got a sort of TV uh, features, I mean, sorry, a feature doc, sort of long-form narrative right. department. And do you have like a, a deal with someone to kind of pay for this overhead, or are you just paying for it out of your own uh, we, trading? Yeah, no, both companies. So on the corner, did some private investment raising, right. as did Box to Box. Right. But what we did was we did it with private individuals just because we didn't want to. I was surprised when we were looking for financing, because if you go down the traditional TV route, mm-hmm. say you talk to BBC Worldwide or ITV Global or somebody yeah. about an overhead deal or an equity deal or whatever, sort of strange accepted wisdom in that space is that they'll buy 25% of your company now for a X amount yeah. of pounds. Yeah. But they want to know that within four years they can own your company entirely. So there's a path to complete ownership, which is pre-agreed wow. when you sign up. Okay. And the amount is pre-agreed. Wow. But also, the funny thing about TV is that there's, everybody just sets up TV companies to sell them as quickly as possible. It's like, it's, fi- it's totally fine to do that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in film, you're just like, if you just can keep the lights on, you're just overjoyed, you know what I mean? So, um, so I was just like, I know, I'm not in it to, I'm not doing this to basically build a company with the view of selling it as quickly as possible. You mm-hmm. know? I just want to make good stuff, fundamentally. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't want to buy into that model. Right. You know? So you wanted to so independent, basically. And you have backers which, who, who, you, who, you, who have a stake in yeah. the company. Yeah, yeah. Um, I skipped over Exit Through the Gift gift shop, yeah. um, which we sort of came about, kind of, I think it may have even come out bef- around the time of Amy, uh, of Senna, Senna yeah. or before even. We were or, sort of doing them simultaneously. Right. Uh, so how did that come, you're an, you're an exec on that, yeah. Yeah, so what happened there was, um, when I was living in Los Angeles, my flatmate, uh, Zali, was Sean Penn's assistant, and she, just my really, really old friend of mine, and she, we all came back to the UK roughly the same time, and she ended up, ended up being Banksy's manager. So, um, she, we had a drink one night. She said, we're going to make this documentary about street art. We don't really know how to do it. Should we go to Channel 4? Should we finance it ourselves? And we sort of just talked about it. And then she called me about six months later saying, we've got this 
cut. You know, we've got this sort of film. We don't really know what it is. It's really weird coming over and look at it. It's really funny because I don't know if you've seen Exhibition of the Gift Shop, but it's, it's a typical Banksy creation. It's really funny. It's really subversive. But the first cut of it, which is just all about this lunatic, Mr. Brainwash, was just really depressing because, like, my God, who is this guy? You know, it's just this is, you know, I can't believe that he's kind of managed to pull this scam off, basically. Anyway, so it became the thing that the film that it is now and became much more entertaining. And um, yeah, I just sort of helped them commercialize it. So we took it to Sundance, right. we got a sales agent, we started to do that thing with it. But we self-distributed that in, um, in the States, which was a really interesting experience because nobody was really doing that then. We got this guy to finance the PNA. We totally assembled a, a hand-picked team of people. So there's a very famous American sales agent called John Sloss. Mm -hmm. So he kind of quarterbacked the exercise. We brought in independent marketing people, independent physical distribution people, independent digital people. And we used to have these kind of mad bi-weekly sort of huge conference calls with about 20 people on the phone from all different parts of America and the UK coordinating this release. And we've got this mad guy called Ron Burkle who owns the Soho House Group and all kinds of things. He's just a supermarket billionaire. Mm -hmm. He sort of put up a lump of P&A cash on quite you know, relatively manageable terms. And so we just distributed it ourselves. Obviously, it did really well. And in which territories? In the States. Really? OK. And it obviously got an Oscar nomination and everything. So it was a really, you know, it was really maverick at the time to do it that way. But it totally worked. I mean, the, t the respective people we hired, whether it was the publicity people or the di distribution people, were all really, really good, I have to say. And I think that's if there's one sort of um, thing I think we need to catch up on in this country, it is the ability to approach it that way if you want to. Mm -hmm. But you can build a team in the States and do it that way. Yeah. And do it outside of the system. You can book the screens and you can, you know, you can... You're taking a lot of risk. You are, but those people do it on a fairly regular yeah. basis, you know. And you but financial risk, I mean, as opposed to... Yeah, I mean, know. but we knew we had a really good film and it was coming, right. out, it was coming out of a really, really hot Sundance mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And Banksy... Banksy's kind of more loved in the States than he is here, even, sort of right, thing. Right. He's incredibly sort of newsworthy. You can generate so much noise around him so easily. And he's the master of promotion anyway. Mm -hmm. So we knew we had something really good to work with. And there was a really captive audience there. And it just went on this massive run. It was just the fact that we didn't say A24, who weren't existing then. But you know, yeah. we didn't say over to you guys and just, or focus or something, right. just say, we hope you get it right, fingers crossed. We kind of really micromanaged every step of the process. And it, you know, it, it was, but it, we, we did it, you know, that's the thing, because it's, I mean, it's a vast amount of work to do it that way. Mm -hmm. And then we did it again with Santa, actually, in the in, States. In the States, yeah. right. Um, but so since we're talking about distribution, we should talk about your relationship with Altitude, because that's been a very key partner for you. Yeah. Um, and you've, I mean, obviously, you've had good experiences because you keep doing films with them. How, I mean, how much input are you having on the release campaign? On you know, do you get involved in terms of you know those kind of key decisions about release date and marketing image and uh, how wide it's going to go and all of that? Yeah, yeah, stuff. totally. I mean, we're massively involved in all of that. I mean, dating is obviously a massively um, important part of the process, and we're currently in a film about Diego Maradona, so we're mm -hmm. going to play the idea there, for example. So the discussion we'll typically have with somebody like Altitude is okay. You know, Senna and Amy were kind of like early summer releases. Mm -hmm. You're trying to basically avoid yeah. the award season sort of thing. Yeah. But obviously, the idea next year is to try and get the film to Cannes, ideally. Mm -hmm. So then you've got Cannes, then you've got World Cup, mm -hmm. then you've got release, the idea. Right. Okay. So as long as Diego hasn't tried to have us all killed by the time 
the, uh, which is a distinct possibility. I mean, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of only semi-joking. But <laughs> if he's still talking to us right. post-CAN, right. if we get into CAN and all the rest of it, yeah. and if he's still here and all the rest of it, then, um, then that would be the ideal play. But so that, so yeah, we will have a, well, the tricky part in the evolving landscape right now, and we had real aggro on Amy's because A24 bought it for North America. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, our windowing is different here. Yeah. So basically, if you want a, a, a wide release here, you've got that four month window. Yes. To navigate, if you want Bef to get into before the- it, Before it can transition onto any home entertainment yeah, platform. Yeah, exactly. Right. But the States, you know, that they've just ripped up the playbook in terms of that. You know, that's yeah. just not an option yeah. for a doc. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So their day and day, all that kind of stuff. So trying to marry your release dates between your bigger European territories and your American territory is getting increasingly hard, especially if you think the thing's got legs here theatrically. Yeah. So Marathon, I don't know yet, but I mean, I think, I think Amy may be the last doc that will play for like that long. I mean, it's just, you know, it was, it was theatrically a big success here mm -hmm. for a doc. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to get docs playing for four months in cinemas here anymore. I think it's, you know, I think it's just, I think, I'm not sure it's viable. So that may be the last one. I'd be love to be proved wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's sort of that, that, in the world where you've got Amazons and Netflixes exerting their control. Yeah, so that means, obviously, if they're going to exert control, then you can be in lots of cinemas. You just can't be in Odeon View or Cineworld. So, yeah. you know, you can, you can have a big art house release. Uh, it's just, you know, you're not going to be in those three chains who do require that 16-week window. Yeah, and, you know, it, it also, it's all sort of reverse engineering, isn't it? Because we, those documentaries we make, I mean, the asset documentaries, they're not cheap. So you've got to, mm -hmm. you've got to, you know, if you're going the traditional theatrical route as opposed to just trying to get lucky with Netflix and do, you know, one-stop shop for a big number, then, you know, if you're trying to recoup that money, you know, you need to be in a lot of sites. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, so you've just got to, you know, that's the disconnect is that the UK play versus, you know, other territories. It's all, it's all about that home end release as well, trying to coordinate that and, you know, so that that, so that you know, piracy is an issue. You have mm -hmm. to think of all these of different moving parts. Um, but it is getting increasingly difficult, just because, the, as I said, you know, the uh, American model is just that's changing by the week. You know, I know, you know, producing a doc that's directed by Alfred Capaldi is probably a different experience. And in fact, I interviewed Will Clark from Altitude last week, yeah. and I said, you know, how were the sales on Maradona? And he said, well, it's as if. What do you think? You know, it, it just went every territory, you know, pretty quickly. But how, uh, leaving, you know, him to one side. Oh, entirely accurate. Right, OK. Well, that's a, that's a distributor kind <laughs> no, of... No, uh, because we've, we've chosen not to sell quite a lot of stuff until we okay. finish it. Fine. But certainly the, the rights that they were assigned, yeah, yeah, yeah. there was no sh shortage of interest yeah. for them. Um, but in terms of your, you know, the other films that you're making, how, how are you finding the kind of market for documentary, theatrical documentary, say, compared to five years ago? I think it's a... I honestly think it's like... It couldn't be, couldn't be much better. I mm -hmm. think at this moment in time, just because the, just the amount of buyers out there now, who have a genuine appetite. I mean, they, you know, that term they use in the states all the time for premium content, whether that's scripted or unscripted or whatever. They, there is an insatiable appetite, uh, in the states basically for really, really good content. So, obviously, traditionally you had all your you know, your regular uh, theatrical distributors. Mm -hmm. So you still have people at A24. You see you got the studios who dip in and out yeah. of it. Yeah. You know, to give you an indication, 
Steve McQueen's thing, the two-pack documentary. The studios bought that for like a, you know, a, a, like a unbelievably huge amount of money. Like, you know, mind-boggling amount of money for a documentary. Right. Like a sort of normal star-driven theatrical movie price. Right. Right? So you've got those guys occasionally doing something. I mean, that's the thing. I, I suppose that's so indicative of the fact that you've got studios buying documentaries. I mean, that wouldn't have happened five years ago, you know. Um, and then you have all your independent players like A24. Mm -hmm. Then you've got all your HBOs who've been around for ages and your Showtimes and all those guys. Yeah. But then you have this. Then you have the Netflix and the Amazons. Mm -hmm. So you have Netflix in the far distance having worked out their model and their deals getting worse and worse and worse and worse all the time because they can afford to basically rip producers off now. Then you've got Amazon right. who are being slightly more flexible. Yeah. But then you've got this whole new wave of people coming through behind them, whether it's Hulu or Apple or YouTube, who are offering these incredibly good deals because they've got to get critical mass. They just need stuff now. Right. So they're on a, basically on a, on a spending spree. Right. So you know, if Netflix are basically doing a complete buyout, all right, you know, basically, so that's it. You send it to Netflix as an original, mm -hmm. you never see it again. It's just there forever, that's it. You can't do anything else with it. Yeah. You know, the word that I'm hearing is that the Apple deal is a two-year license and you get the film back. They'll give you whatever, you know, if they want it, they'll pay you for it, <clears throat> probably more than anybody else. Yeah. Then you get the film back after two years, which is an unbelievably good deal. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that won't last. So I think the thing about it is basically trying to get in. It's all that timing, inevitably. So the deal that Andy Harris did on The Crown with Netflix mm -hmm. will never be done again. Do you know what I mean? He got them exactly the right time. Right. The deal that you're going to do with Apple right now yeah. will be a, a sort of, you know, you won't be able to do that in five years' time. Yeah. And listen, it may all come to a kind of grinding halt, but right now there seems to be this, as I said, this unquenchable appetite for stuff. And obviously, you know, the price point for premium doc content mm -hmm. is still a fraction of what the crown's going to cost you. Yeah. But in terms of if you're a documentary maker, you know, there are just potentially so many more avenues to exploit. But I guess it depends on the subject. And I mean, first does. of all, it has to be international in its appeal, presumably. Or, yeah, I mean, listen, you know, I was speaking to YouTube yesterday and they at the moment, they need stuff that plays in the States, but they're on the verge of basically commissioning stuff for the UK, for example, that will play in the UK. Right. And likewise with um, Amazon mm -hmm. and Netflix, and now starting to think, okay, that sustains, you know, if it doesn't have to be somewhere, I mean, obviously they're in 200 countries, but it can be UK-centric facing. Really? UK facing, so. And well, to do that impacts the, the budgetary scale that you can Probably, make, it's really, make it. I think it's really case by case though. Right. Um, what about television? I mean, you you haven't have you made any? We're making some TV now. Right. So what what, what are you doing? We're doing a three part uh, documentary series for BBC One, which looks at the entire Stephen Lawrence case from beginning to end. So it's um, there's been obviously lots of things made about Stephen Lawrence in the past. Some really really great things as well. And who's directing that? That's a guy called James Rogan, who's a really good. Um, he's done all kinds of things, mostly unscripted, whether it's uh, long-form observational series about Iceland supermarket for BBC Two, which is really good, mm -hmm. to feature documentaries about Monty Python. So all kinds of stuff. It's just a really bright, very smart TV director. So that's archive-based, and um, that's with the full cooperation of Stephen's family. But that's, um, I was telling you earlier, that's a terrifying situation because the turnaround is so quick. Really? Or compared to like a feature doc, it's like we've made, turning the whole thing around in nine months. So in my mind, three hours of archive, I'd spend about Five years doing that, right? You know. Is it is it literally all archive based? I mean, because I mean, I, I feel like as if 
sort of almost evolved, created his own style yeah. by you know the only you know new content is aud is audio in his mm. his films. Um, you know, which you know it seems to be a style that's sort of gaining currency as well. You know, people. I you know I'm increasingly seeing people sort of yeah. trying to emulate it. But is that going to be the your in-house style, or is that? It just sort of is. I mean, you know. Oh, it's more like an ambition. I think um, what Asif Chris and I do in those movies, you know, April there was Samuel Senna, that was that was born initially out of the fact that S Senna's not here, everyone yeah. S is not here. So you don't want to have a load of talking heads, but not them. Right. And also, it's that thing of it's quite immersive because if you cut between talking heads and and archive, you're in and out of time frames. Mm -hmm. And the thing about I think works about something like Senna is that you feel you're in the story and you stay in the story until it reaches its climax, as opposed to coming back to then and then going back to then. On Stephen Lawrence, there will be probably maybe some talking heads because we just simply haven't got the time to find three hours worth of archive, probably. Because right. it's such a short time frame to make it. Right, right. But there may be also a live element to the third episode, which is like what's happening with the people involved in that story right now. Because it, it's still live, there's still three investigations, the murder investigation, an undercover policing investigation, and a police corruption investigation. And of course, only two people have ever been arrested for that. What sort of delivery date did you, did you mention it? Or? It's the 25th anniversary of his death in April next year. So we are now, we, we start editing on Monday, which we've only been researching for about two months. I mean, I can't, I don't know how they're going to do it. I'm just really glad I'm not doing it. <laughs> but they seem to know what they're doing, so it's great. How hands-on are you as a producer? Because I mean, I would have thought, you know, when you're making a film with Asif, obviously you've got to have someone who's doing all the archive. You're going to have to, he, he's then going to do his audio interviews, which presumably he needs a, as much intimacy as possible with the, yeah. the witnesses. So therefore, ideally, you wouldn't be there. Do you mean not Asif or the other one? Or well, I, I, I mean, yeah, I meant more, more, more for Asif, but. Well, he's, I mean, the cutting room, it just so happens and we're about to move, but his cutting room is, is next door. So right. and there are a whole research team. We're in one big open plan space. So, We've done so many films together now that the machine, we've got all the same people, so the machine is fairly efficient. They've all done it a couple of times, so they know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but I'm just around, so you just right. kind of, you, you know, you're always hearing what's going on. So it's, um, it, I'm not as hands-on as I was because of, I'm sort of now, it's more about running a company than actually day-to-day -day producing. But it's just in that particular thing, mm -hmm. because I know how, because they know how to do it. I can just keep an eye on it sort of thing. And do you, so do you have other producers who kind of come on board who do, a, I guess, a more kind of intimate supervisory day-to-day? -day? Yeah, so some, on something like um, Supersonic, the Oasis movie, mm -hmm. the director came with the producer, and so she did the heavy lifting. Right. So she would do, like, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff, and I'd mm -hmm. just be around as and when. But I do like, you know, fundamentally, I mean, I'm quite strong on the financing side of things, and I'm quite strong on the editing side of things. Mm -hmm. So that's, again, when I sort of, you know, just to make sure as much as anybody else's, but I just, you know, I very, I do make sure I'm involved in that process at the end. Since you mentioned Supersonic, um, I noticed that both Liam Gallagher and Noel Gallagher were exec producers yeah. on that. How, how was that um, collaboration? God, I mean, what are those cliches about, you know, <laughs> never working with Irish rock and roll brothers? Um, <laughs> it was a nightmare, to be honest with you. Um, Oh God, there's so many. I mean, I can't really talk about them without swearing because it's just like. Did you have meetings with them together, or was it, it was Noel's idea, or was it a kind of like Kofi and Anne kind of situation? Yeah, no, it was. They can't be in the same room as each other. It's pathetic. Right. Um, 
So no, it was Noel's idea. So he approached me and Asif about doing it. Right. Asif was like, you know, I'm, I'm doing Maradona, so I can't do it. But it's not really Asif's cup of tea anyway. So then we found another team, a director, obviously. Yeah. Matt Whitecross is brilliant. And um, yeah. it was pathetic. I mean, it was Noel's idea. He was very helpful. Um, and, uh, but we had to pretend to Liam that it wasn't Noel's idea. Right. So then we had to go basically sit in a cafe with Liam and Highgate and go, we've had this great idea about making a documentary about Oasis. And he was like, does Noel know about it? No, he doesn't know about it. We just want, <laughs> we wanted to get, get you on the side, and then we're going to go and have a chat with him. <laughs> and honestly, it was like, it was pathetic. And it's ridiculous. You know, they're grown men. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, so anyway, we managed to get it over the line. And then... Um, Did they have a sign-off, I mean, as exec producers? Presumably, they, they must no, have... They had no, they didn't have... No, I mean, we did they, But did they have notes? Yeah, but I mean, to be honest with you, they weren't... No, Noel's big note was that he just wanted to make... It wasn't really a history of Oasis, that movie. It was about, yeah. that, about that moment in time, yeah. pre-social media and pre-digital, mm -hmm. about that whole kind of like, you know, visceral moment that that was and that kind of 90s crossroad. Um, he just wanted to make sure we really hit that more than anything. Mm -hmm. And, um, no, Liam. I mean, Liam, obviously, we screened the film for Liam. He just, he'd go to the loop every 10 minutes to tell him <laughs> what he's up to. But, um, so, you know, it was hard to get him to really concentrate on a 90-minute film. But you seem happy enough at the end of it. You know? I've done that now. I'm not going back there. You know, God bless them. They're both really nice for about half an hour. And then you just that's enough. You know. And was that um, easy to sell into that position internationally, that film? It was, yeah. Oh, yeah, we did, actually. We sold that to A24 in the States as well. I mean, they are quite big globally, so, you know, it's, yeah. um, you know, yeah. I, can't even, I, I need to check up. No, but it's done pretty well. It did, you know, it's done very well here, so no, we're happy with that. Um, and, I mean, after you started making documentaries, you did um, sort of do another couple of scripted features. Yeah, I don't want to talk about those. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> was like they were afterthoughts almost. It's like, you know, I just, you know, I just really don't miss making movies at all. I just don't miss the finance, as we were discussing earlier, the financing is obviously just brutal out there these days. Foreign sales, you know, trying to do that thing is brutal. But Ca also, casting is... Casting is just a joke. I mean, I've got friends, you know, I've got mates who are quite successful film directors. You know, and the, kind of the cast requirements now in a sort of three million pound film are just insane, you know, let alone yeah. 20 million quid or 50 million. Do you know? Yeah. So I don't miss that. And also the thing I don't miss is um, development. I had that first deal with Working Title and I had sort of 20 things in development. And, you know, you spend five years not making a film, you know. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know, life's too short. So the great thing about what I do now is that the development is... Super quick, you know. You can either get access to Kate Moss to make a documentary about, or you can't, you know. Yeah. And if you want to make a uh, documentary series about Lillian Betancourt, you can either get the access or you can't. Do you know what I mean? And then the thing about it is, on Netflix once, is a really great three-page treatment. You have to spend years with different writers getting trying to get scripts right, which, as we know, is incredibly hard anyway. Yeah. Even with really talented people. So, no, I don't miss it at all, and I think the whole, you know. The reality of you know documentary's new sort of profile and its attraction and the demand for it, and the fact that you know life is stranger than fiction. I mean, there is so there are so many great narratives out there that you can turn into really compelling series that play like drama. Do you know what I mean? I think you know the greatest compliment we have about things like cinema is that you know people think it's like it plays as a drama. Mm -hmm. You know, it just yeah. happens to be real. Yeah. You know. 
do you have like a formal development meeting in your company where you're kind of like setting aside specific blocks of time where people are kind of bringing ideas in, or is it just a kind of completely organic? No, flow? we do. I mean, you know, they, they, I always miss them, but no, we do. We, we, <laughs> we basically, um, we do. I'm trying to get more grown up about it and sort of have regular meetings, but no, we've got really Because the danger is you just get, you know, sucked into what you're doing and then suddenly yeah. you're like shattered and oh, what's next? But you know, you have to have, you know, we have had a, a really good run because you know we have worked incredibly hard for quite a long time, but you still do need a pretty big slate of ideas mm -hmm. because you know the reality is one in five are going to work if you're lucky. Do you know what I mean? Right. But because, because of access issues, or because of access, or because um, somebody else gets there first, or right. whatever you know. Um, right. But the thing I think you know the interesting thing about it is that if you can get the access, there's definitely money out there. Mm -hmm. You know, so. It's in some ways easier than relative movies, uh, than normal movies, I think, because right. you don't have those things we just talked about. I mean, casting is, is the kiss of death, you know. And in, you know, in right. my world, Amy Winehouse is already attached. Yeah. You know, and she, yeah. she's fine. You can cast her or finance her. Although I guess you kind of needed to um, get certain. Key. I mean, that film wouldn't have been the film it was had as if and you know yourselves not being able to engage certain witnesses that were just. You know, made that film. You know, made that film. Yeah, a kind of creative achievement. No, no, it was. I mean, the thing about that was, on Senna, you know, the entire community basically totally volunteered to help and mm. wanted to be a part of it. On Amy, nobody wanted to be a part of the film on any level, apart from her dad. And you know, <laughs> so there you go. Um, but everybody else had to be strong-armed into doing it. Or, or seduced, I guess. No, I mean, only in the nicest possible way, strong. I mean, you know, people like her best friend, Juliet, is yeah. a really key voice in it. Yeah. We spent over a year convincing her to right. be a part of it. Right. And uh, thank God she said yes, because she's you know, a key part of the story. But uh, for very understandable reasons, everybody was so scarred and burnt by that whole story. Mm -hmm. They just didn't, you know, nobody had really even come to, because the film was made relatively quickly after her death. Nobody you know, had got any closure or kind of processed it. Mm -hmm. So no, it was a brutal, brutal film to make on every level of that film. It was really, I mean, there were many, many times when Asif and I sort of um, questioned what we were trying to achieve. And you know, I we never really considered walking away, but there were a lot of times where we really were out of our depth and were like, you know, everything about this is just toxic. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm not sure how we're gonna pull something sort of, not valuable, but how are we gonna find the lightness? How are we gonna make a film that is Watchable. I mean, we had early cuts of that film, which was so hardcore, that, you know, which were very accurate, honest versions of the story, but they were just, it was just, the story's so heavy, you know, so it was just trying to get that balance right. And then we managed to do it ultimately because her first marriage, Nick Shemansky, is obviously sort of the first half of the story. Mm -hmm. He had all this amazing early footage of yeah. her when she wasn't so damaged. You know? Yeah. And that, that gave you the levity, it gave you some levity, some light before it just goes into that incredibly dark. Uh, second half journey. Yeah. Um, and how was, when, when the film was made, obviously it got a fantastic reactions apart from, from Amy's father, who just sort of really yeah. took against it. Um, was that kind of challenging dealing with, with that or? Well, yeah, enormously. I mean, really enormously. I mean, I was saying to somebody earlier, you know, that you're getting into quite tricky ethical territory in some ways because, um, you know, I have two teenage daughters. I'm not a perfect parent. And you know, to basically put a narrative out there in the public domain, which sort of implicitly or you know, imp sort of criticizes somebody's 
parenting skills is, you know, so it's sort of who am I to say that somebody's a bad parent? Mm -hmm. So you've just got to try and find the right balance in terms of that responsibility, because at the same time, it was a, she was a very public narrative, which we felt had been very um, misconstrued in some ways. I think that just the media had decided on the narrative and that she was just a fucking car crash junkie mm -hmm. that deserved to be kicked yeah. all the time. Yeah. And we just, part of the reason why her label wanted to commission the project in the first place is because they were like, the legacy is just, it's lopsided. Yeah. And we need to reboot the legacy, not for commercial reasons, because at the end of the day, you know, they just were like, she was amazing, but nobody remembers the, the good stuff about it. Of course, she was, it's complicated, it's not, not black and white. Yeah. But the good stuff's been forgotten. Yeah. So I'm proud of the film in that sense that I think it does reinform and also shine a light on why things turned out the way they did. But obviously, that wasn't very palatable to some people because they don't want to go there, but that's their prerogative. So it's that, always walking that line. And so, no, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but we spent an awful lot of time with lawyers here and America trying to work out exactly what the film could say and be able to substantiate everything, mm -hmm. stand behind everything, and just try to th thread it so right. we could still say what we wanted to say, but without being libelous or whatever. You know. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine you know, the people who are your, your partners and stakeholders kind of need that reassurance that this is not going to yeah. kind of blow up into um, something that is going to prevent the distribution of the film. Yeah, and, you know, and um, it's, uh, it's funny because you know, the, it's a, it was an unusual situation because it was commissioned by Universal Music, who her label and you know, they're used to sort of rock and roll antics and stuff. And they, to be fair to them, they did a brilliant job of managing everybody, mm -hmm. keeping the whole sort of show on the road. Right. But it was, you know, it was a full time and quite, um, it was quite scary. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a particularly pleasurable experience, but obviously it was worth it in yeah. the end, but you know, it was tough. Um, right, I'd love to, yes, so there's one right on the front row, but as the microphone is there, why don't we just, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I just wanted to ask you, um, there's a lot of talk at the moment about diversity, of course, or it's yeah. you know, ongoing discussion, conversation, etc. I'm just wondering, do you sort of, uh, how, how are you sort of addressing that as a company? Are you, are you working with a lot of female creatives or, or filmmakers, sorry, BAME creatives, practitioners? Um, is that sort of part of uh, your company remit? And also, uh, were you approached for the Whitney Doc? Or one of the Whitney Docs, sorry. No. We weren't approached with the Whitney Doc. I mean, no, no, so that's nothing to do with us. But in terms of the diversity thing, it is something that we probably need to think about a bit more. I mean, we're sort of going up in this weird transitional phase from just being a sort of producer-director team, sort of me and Asif doing our thing. Obviously, Asif's Anglo-Asian. But as the company grows, we need to sort of, you know, I'll be completely honest with you. It's sort of, you know, it's that funny thing. We sort of go from basically being a producer to being one of a better word of businessman. You have to start thinking about these things. It's obviously very relevant on the Stephen Lawrence thing. We've got a very diverse team on that. Um, because that's, a, you know, the BBC, obviously very hot on that. So um, we have an eye on it. I mean, I've worked with female directors before. I made McCullum with um, Jackie Morris. Um, it's not, you know, we're not really of a size yet where we can kind of go, right, this year we're going to do three things in that space. Do you know what I mean? But we do need to basically get, that's sort of the next wave of awareness. It's about being self-aware in a way and kind of like trying to think about 
what the company can legitimately do, playing to one's strengths, but then within that, those parameters, working out how to best do what you're talking about and kind of have an eye on that. And to, It's quite interesting, though, because what I definitely get a sense of is the next wave of people that are coming through the company come from all four corners of the UK, do you know what I mean? And really different backgrounds. And I think that, I don't know how you find it, but in terms of the, I remember when we got those sort of working title years, there was a real, I remember Tim and Eric being really hung up on the fact that the film industry was controlled by people who'd been to Oxbridge. And, um, you know, I, was, I didn't go to Oxbridge, and I, you know, I don't know that many people that did. But I really do feel that the business, in documentaries particularly, mm. is really opening up, and there just seems to be a really variety of, whether it's state-educated people, you know, a lot of the people that work for us are you know, really smart young girls. I mean, it's a really, it seems more like a level, level playing field, if I'm honest. And maybe that's the TV doc business, which we're in a bit more. Um, feature doc world. I couldn't, I'm not so sure where that's going, but it feels like it's going in the right direction, but we definitely need to pay attention to it. Um, James, thanks very much for your insights this morning. I'm just curious to know about the effect that awards have on, you, on your films, because obviously with Oscars and stuff, you know, in terms of how much of a help or a hindrance is having them saying it's an award-winning documentary, how does that affect your the challenges to get films made? Does it, is it a help or a hindrance? There's no denying that it does help to uh, do that sort of stuff or to have that in your locker because, um, listen, it's, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. It's nice to get some recognition, all the rest of it. There was, very, there was one very precise moment I remember in, um, on the Amy journey when it was clear that, because it was a big hit in America, it was clear that we, were gonna, we could go for that, the awards play if we wanted to do it. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a financial decision because you end up paying for it. And you know, it costs a hell of a lot of money to do an awards campaign. I think we spent $500,000 on the awards campaign, which is just what you do. I mean, all docs do. I mean, Netflix would have spent a multiple of that trying to get Nina Simone <laughs> to be nominated and win. But it was a, it was a to be honest, it was a, it was a commercial decision because it's like, if you do win an Oscar, it gives you a bit more leverage in the market and it enables you to make more movies, which at the end of the day is what it's all about, you know. So I'd be, it'd be disingenuous of me to say that it, that wasn't a factor in terms of our thinking, because I want to make films, and if it, you know, it's always incredibly hard to get anything made. So if it helps, then yeah. You got any more questions? <coughs> yes. Oh. I'm interested in knowing how you handled the uh, budgeting process uh, for a film like Amy, which has so many unpredictable elements and timetable and so on. Do you, do you have a, a, an outside figure with loads of contingency built in, or do you have to go back to financiers and ask for more money sometimes? No, we kind of, um, we, they just, the thing about archive-based documentaries, they take an enormous amount, I mean, they're basically one huge edit. And you know, the research takes, we'll research for my Amy for like a year before we start editing. And then we will edit for, I mean, I think we edited on Amy for over 18 months. And, you know, the editors are quite expensive. The team is expensive. But archive itself is expensive. It's much cheaper to shoot documentaries than it is to do archive. Because, you know, you're doing a global buyout of the archive and all the rest of it. And, you know, we had countless times on Amy where somebody would have a piece of archive and they'd be literally demanding a million pounds for like 10 minutes of archive. And you're like, oh, I've got 30,000 pounds. Um, <laughs> And so, um, so, yes, it does. You have to have an outside sort of, you know, um, 
your absolute maximum you can spend on it. And films like Amy and Senna and Maradona aren't cheap because they're long-form archive documentaries, and they, they just are, by definition, very expensive. Um, so the economics are quite challenging on those films. That's why they've got to work. Um, but no, we don't. We're pretty much we're always on budget. I mean, schedule, you can you know, just cut and cut and cut and cut, but we always manage to keep it within just about what we expected to make it for. OK. Oh, this right. So one here, one there, and one there. Um, going back to what you were saying about the, um, <coughs> excuse me, the situation in the film industry, um, your company at the moment is very much doing documentaries, TV. Um, if the situation gets better within the film industry, would you, would you branch out more into that? What what is? I guess my question is. What is your view of your company's future? Where would you like to go, and how would you play that? I just want to stay in the unscripted space. I've got literally zero interest in um, going back into the film business at all. There's so much, I think, work to be done available in the unscripted space. And um, listen, I mean, if the most amazing script in the world magically appeared on my desk, I thought, my God, you know, that's going to, you know, you'd be mad not to make it. But I'm not looking for it at all. I wouldn't mind doing some TV drama at some point, but again, I mean, you know, that's incredibly competitive, that space. And um, we've got our work cut out, I think, in the, uh, whether it's feature docs, I mean, we have a fact end department, so, you know, trying to find formats, whatever, which is a business plan, really. But I've got my hands full with this for the time being. And I think, you know, we've already spinning quite a lot of plates, and I think to try and be all things to all men is, would be short-sighted. So, and I just think it's that thing that's just timing. There's a brilliant, it's a brilliant moment to be doing great docs and, and great unscripted stuff. So I think it's, there's, you know, it's going to keep me busy. So keep net, but I think being focused is really smart. Um, so yeah, third row, Alicia, and then the row behind. I just wondered if you could just explain or talk a little bit more about the problems of casting for feature. Say what a nightmare it's become. I just think it's, um, again, I'm not really in the loop anymore because I haven't made a, one of those movies for a while, but from what I hear, it's just, you know, the foreign sales market is really challenging, and um, therefore, you have to over-index on casting, and the whole package has to be so great now to finance something in that way. So that's just, the, that's just the feedback I'm getting, and, you know, casting has always been hard, obviously, because it's, you know, sales agents have, you know, these lists of people that work for them, or whatever the, the model is, but... I just think it's, uh, I don't know how much longer that's going to sustain, I don't know. Well, the, f the feedback I'm getting is that, is that actors are all unbelievably busy because they're all doing, doing TV. They're all doing TV and um, it's just, you know, it's really, really challenging to attach something that's going to be meaningful in the, in, the, in the financial marketplace when actors are, you know, they're all, their agents are saying, you know, well, maybe in two years, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned initially that when you're starting a sustainable business, you didn't go to ITV or BBC because of their structure, and you raised finance elsewhere. Did you go? Where did you go? Did you go to individuals or? Yeah, yes, it was private individuals. Um, so they would take advantage of the EIS option, obviously, and um, they were people that I knew already who understood the space and uh, was liked what we were doing and. Um, yeah, so they just basically, it was, a, it was an upside play. It was just it was a straight equity play. It wasn't a lot of money, and it wasn't a lot of the company. Um, and um, 
touch wood, they won't lose their money. But they might do, you know, there's <laughs> a possibility. Um, so I think you've got the mic, yeah. Hi, um, I'm a producer working with lots of young, diverse talent, and I'm seeing a trend both sort of in what they're watching of short form content, yeah. as we've been talking about for years in the industry. Yeah. Just wondered if you have a plan to tackle that and engage those audiences, because they're growing every year. It's something we're tr always trying to look at, and um, it's, uh, we definitely, especially in the sports space, we want to do some stuff there, more to drive our sort of social and kind of stuff. It's a, kind of, it's a sort of virtuous circle if you can get into that world. I actually had a meeting with um, uh, somebody who runs Rio Ferdinand's company the other day. So Rio Ferdinand did that documentary about losing his wife the other day, which obviously worked really well. And so the guy that runs his company, you know, I think Rio Ferdinand's got something like 900,000 followers on Instagram or and 8 million on Twitter or something, I don't know, but quite big business. But he was saying that it, the really interesting thing is that, you know, you've got to put two pieces of content out a day to keep that alive, you know. And so it's, um, we had this conversation all the time, especially in the sports space, about how can we increase our sort of bandwidth in that area and blah, 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 blah. Because we've got, there aren't many companies that have made as many, I don't think, good sports feature docs as us. There's Palio, there's all this mayhem, there's Senna, there's Maradona, blah, blah, blah. And um, we feel like we should be capitalizing on it in the digital space. But I'm an old fart. I don't really understand any of that stuff. Do you know what I mean? I'm not on Twitter. I don't do that sort of stuff. So we keep on thinking about engaging with it in some capacity. But it feels like it's going to have to be another standalone exercise at some point in time, which we sort of farm out and kind of get into it. But we should be doing something in that space. We will do. We're maybe speaking to Spotify about doing something there. But I can't pretend to know that much about it. You know, I'm just the wrong generation. It's kind of it's too late. <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? It's really scary, actually. Hi. Um, I wanted to pick your brains, in a way, about access. You talked about access. Yeah. Um, so really, advice on that dividing line between persistence, strong arming, and harassment, I suppose. Well, it's all about time. You can't. It depends who it is. If it's um, you know, we obviously do kind of sort of high-profile people because um, I think they're interesting sometimes and because you know they are viable. But they've just got to want to do it. You can't make somebody do something doesn't want, they don't want to do. Um, so we just went through. I was just telling somebody earlier. We went through this long process recently with Andre Agassi, the tennis player, who wrote this amazing book called Open um, about ten years ago, which is a really great insight into you know his own demons and the demons of tennis and everything else. So anyway, we approached him. And he's been approached countless times. I mean, Spielberg's tried to get that property. I mean, everybody, he's with CAA, he's had countless meetings, and nobody's ever cracked him. And he's a big deal in the States, still, that guy, uh, no matter what his profile's like here. So anyway, we managed to get through another tennis player a meeting with him. So he lives in Las Vegas. We flew out to Las Vegas, and he's got this incredible post-tennis life. He's got 60 schools in America in kind of very underprivileged areas. So he's got this whole program of education which is going on. He's a very, very impressive guy. Um, very uneducated, but very smart, very, uh, you know, very streetwise and um, very self-aware. Anyway, so we had a meeting with him. We're like, you know, it's a great book. We can make a great documentary out of this. We can definitely finance it. Um, do you want to do it? And he's very considered. He's like, let me think about it. Then you get a call three months later come back, have another meeting, we want to think about it. All his people around him were totally up for it. And then we got to the point where we had three meetings with him. And I was pitching my ass off, literally, you know, like, we've got to, I'm explaining why we could do it. And he even, he was that thing of like, you know, we were like, we should watch some of our film. And he went, 
know, I saw that sound and it didn't really work for me. You know. <laughs> I was like, I've never heard that before. That's, <laughs> That's really my, my go-to thing, you know, watch Santa. You know, he's like, eh. no, I didn't really get it. And then you watch Damien. Yeah. So I was like, Christ, this is going to be much harder than I thought. So anyway, we got to the point where he said, who's going to direct it? I was like, OK, let's aim for the top. So we reached out to Ezra Edelman, who just won the Oscar for the OJ thing. And he happened to be a mad Agassi fan. And so um, everybody, everybody is trying to get Ezra to do something now. And he's really, really choosy about what he does. But he was like, I'll do it. And he's really prickly, Ezra. He, he requires a lot of um, handling as well. So we have a meeting with Andre, goes incredibly well. Andre wants to think about it. A couple of months go by, I have another meeting with Andre and Agassi, uh, sorry, Ezra and Agassi in Los Angeles. Goes incredibly well. I'm like, what do we have to do? Do you know what I mean? And meanwhile, you know, the money's sitting there in a bank account, not being spent, the EIS clock is ticking. Anyway. Um, and then we get the call, like, you know, Andre's going to make a decision on Monday. Fine. I don't want to do it. You're like, fucking hell, man. Literally, it's the best possible team that anybody that could ever be put together, in my opinion. You've got the last two Oscar winners. You know, Ezra's a brilliant director. He will make a brilliant film. She's just not feeling it. You're like, you know, it's soul-destroying because, you know, just, a, I really, really wanted to make a film with Ezra. And I think we will do something in the future. But just get, you know, just goes to show you can line up all the elements. You can spend a year trying to get it together. I think, well, we're really only got time for one, one more question, but you want to ask a question. So we'll do you, and then we'll do you. But we may have to stop then, depending on how, what our hosts think. Um, so there have been a few films recently that have borrowed the technique of Amy and Senna, yeah. kind of, you know, archive, not seeing people. I mean, LA 92 went even further and didn't even bother doing the interviews. Yeah, I know. It's just slapped down. The, I just wondered if, with well, two questions, really, I wonder if you thought any of um, and also, is Maradona using that same kind of device? Yeah, Maradona is the same. Um, every time we basically start a new film, we think we would do it differently in terms of, I mean, the thing about it is it's not so much the, um, the use of archive, because of, they, it's an archive exercise, Maradona, because it's about a moment in time. It's not about where he's at now, necessarily. But we always think we're going to structure them differently. And you know, but they always end up starting at the beginning and ending at the end. Um, so in answer to your question, no, I think loads of people are doing it well. I mean, I thought LA 92 was really interesting because I thought, it, I, thought, I thought it worked. But I did kind of, I didn't emotionally massively engage with that story because I wanted to hear from people who were there at the time. And you know, maybe even retrospectively, but I needed slightly more personal account of what was going on. It was, it was, I just felt it was a tiny bit too removed, that film even though I thought it was brilliantly edited and the music was fantastic. I think those guys are really, really smart, TJ and Dan, and I'd like to work with them. But I think, you know, and I'm not saying this because, you know, we wouldn't have done it that way, but I think they maybe took it one step too far in that. Just for me, other people, you know, people may feel, feel differently. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, budgeting. You've said a few times that they're not cheap, these films that you make. And uh, how much is too much when, you, when you're applying for finance and investments? I mean, how much would you say is too much to spend on a documentary feature doc? So we sort of, basically, the way we do it, we sort of have two price points. We basically, the asset ones are about two. 
and the, the other ones we make are at about one. See, I shouldn't have told you that. That's the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're sort of out of time, yeah. And I think we're we're getting a. Seeming a clear to be, sign. We're getting a clear sign. I'd just like to thank you all for coming. I'd like to thank our host, Bafta, and to Jane. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.